You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow, Slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live from the studios of Community Radio 3 ECR in Melbourne. The program is heard in about 15 to 20 community radio stations across Australia, as well as four triple Z in Brisbane, which is not affiliated to the community radio network. My name is Joseph Toscano. Kelly Whitworth is the producer of the program. And the Anarchist World this week has been going on for a long, long time. Now, those of you who listen to this regularly will know that uh, in Melbourne and Victoria will know that 3CR's had a radio font. The Radiophon uh, continues till the end of the financial year, which is the 30th of June, for one very good reason. If you pay taxes, this is a great way to get a legal legitimate tax deduction, as long as you make your contribution by the 30th of June. If you make it after the 30th of June, well, the tax deduction, you can't claim it till next year. So now's the time to ring up. If you've been thinking of uh, donating to the Community Radio 3CR, the radio phone, ring now on 039 419 You can also go 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. 039 3cr.org.au forward slash donate and keep Community Radio uh, 3CR on air because obviously living in a capitalist society, where you get your money to exist determines your agenda. And I can assure you there'd be very few radio stations in this country would actually broadcast the anarchist world this week. And we broadcast courtesy of your support for Community Radio 3CR. We started in 1977 as... Encounters with the Third Alternative, because at that stage the uh, Communist Empire was uh, pretty strong. But uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989, we changed the name to Anarchist World this week. Now, what is anarchism? What is anarchy? Well, a lot of people say it's chaos. <coughs> Unfortunately, they don't really understand. Anarchos means without rulers. We want to create a society without rulers, not without rules. What gives rulers the ability to determine the lives of billions of people? Inequalities in power and wealth. And the great producer, Kelly Whitworth, has walked in with a warm glass of water for the old man because <clears throat> he had his breakfast this morning, got a bit of toast stuck in his gullet. 
So if we start coughing, don't think I'm dying. I don't intend to yet. All right. So inequalities in power and wealth. So what's the anarchist struggle? The anarchist struggle is to hold wealth in common and to devolve power, share power. So if you're involved in that struggle, whether you call yourself an anarchist or not, you are following that a great anarchist tradition that has been part and parcel of uh, human uh, existence since time immemorial. <clears throat> now, as anarchists, we swim against the tide. And the interesting thing about swimming against the tide is that it's tedious and it's hard work and uh, many times you just get swept away. But occasionally, swimming against the tide, well, not occasionally, on many agendas, swimming against the tide sets the political, political, social and cultural agenda. Now, I remember I've been involved in many activities over almost, well, over a half a century. And the fascinating thing is that uh, when you begin to swim against the tide, you begin to realise that it can be done. You don't necessarily have to be swept away. You don't necessarily drown. But it can be done. And what's interesting is that what are considered to be, you know, marginal ideas over decades become mainstream. And there are many issues in our society, those of us who are old enough to remember, that have become the bread and butter of everyday existence. And there are other issues which have been forgotten. Now, unfortunately, there is very little agitation or even discussion regarding alternatives. Because swimming against the tide is very difficult and uh, a lot of people basically get rescued. And the way that people have been rescued over the last four decades is by concentrating on single issues. There's nothing wrong in concentrating on single issues. But the fact is, capitalist society, one based on private investment for private profit, can incorporate any single issue it likes within its framework. Because single issue politics do not challenge the basis of society. And what we've seen over the last 40 to 50 years is a wholesale change in terms of political, social and cultural activity, which has basically been wrapped up in single-issue politics. And many of these single-issue politics have been won, many of these battles have been won, and they've been incorporated within a capitalist framework, a private investment for private profit framework. But... Any issues which challenge that framework, challenge the decision-making processes, challenge the way the economy is structured, challenge the way wealth is distributed and redistributed, have been forgotten. 
And what the anarchist world this week is about is about going back to those basic principles. Obviously, we support single-issue campaigns, but that's not the key area of struggle. The key area of struggle is based on that struggle to share power and hold wealth in common and use it for the common good. That is the key element of struggle, which seems to have been forgotten because anything can be incorporated within a capitalist system except except struggles which challenge that power, which challenge the idea that we should have a private investment for private profit world, which challenge the idea that there are people who are billionaires and people who eke out in existence, you know, who are homeless, which challenges those ideas. And that's the dilemma in the 2023. There are so few people swimming against the tide as far as these issues are concerned. I'll give you an example. Currently, the big debate, the big debate in the land of Oz is housing. The fact that 30 to 40 to 50% of people's income, whether on social security benefits or whether they're on, you know, a reasonable wage or, you know, profitable small business, and let's not forget only uh, 43, only 57% of small businesses, which supposedly is the engine room of employment in this country and employs over 5 million people, actually made a profit in the last financial year. The fact is that we have allowed the deregulation, privatisation, corporatisation, globalisation, mandatory to dominate every aspect of our existence. And public and housing. And everybody's looking for solutions to housing. And these solutions revolve around not the expansion of the public housing sector, to, to allow people who cannot afford to buy a home because of their limited financial circumstances to actually live in public housing, secure long-term public housing. What we see is debates about social housing, community housing, affordable housing. You know, the superannuation companies getting involved in you know, creating that uh, housing. We see the federal government talking about expanding the social and community housing sector through its its legislation and, you know, it just goes on and on. But nobody tends to mention the question of public housing. It's become almost a non-entity. For example, currently... We're involved with public housing, everybody's business, and defend and extend public housing in a campaign with Margaret Kelly. Now, Margaret Kelly was a tenant for over a quarter of a century at the Barrack Beacon Estate in Port Melbourne, which has become very trendy these days, Port Melbourne, and very expensive real estate. And 280 people lived, around 280 people lived in 90 public housing units in Port Melbourne. Now, the state government, in its wisdom, decided that it was going to redevelop this site, not as public housing, 
but give the land over to a private developer who would then build 100 community homes and 250 private homes which the developer would then sell to make a profit. And those community homes were basically run and managed by private enterprise. Now, of all the 280 residents on the estate, there is only one left, and that's Margaret Kelly. And the state government has entered into a contract with a demolition company to demolish the Beaconsfield, the Barrack Beaconsfield estate. And Margaret Kelly now stands in their way. Over the last week, Margaret Kelly, with some assistance from legal assistance, has appeared in the VCAT twice. And she'll be appearing at VCAT again this afternoon at 2.30pm regarding her eviction by the state government. Now, I encourage you, if you've got some time, while you're listening to this program, join up to the Barrack Beacon Estate Facebook group page, all right? Join the Barrack Beacon Estate Facebook group. Join it now. And later on today, uh, once they get the link, the Zoom link, I encourage you, with the VCAT hearing, I encourage you to join that Zoom link so that you can observe what's actually going on in VCAT currently. Because this struggle is not the struggle about an individual. This is a struggle about public housing. Homes that are publicly owned, publicly managed, not just for people in desperate economic situations, which we it's designed for today, but for anybody in this country who cannot afford to enter the private housing market. And I'm not going to bore you with all the positives of public housing. But the Victorian state government and many state governments around this country have embarked on a policy of forceful eviction of people who lived on these estates for decades in order to privatise public land and expand the community affordable, social, inclusive housing sector, which is privately owned and privately managed. It's not just about individual. This is about the struggle for public housing. But the dilemma is the concept of the public good has almost been written out of the experience of the Australian people. Now, when we formed public housing, everybody's business, sorry, when we formed pu- public interest before corporate interest in 2015, we expected a rapid increase in membership. But we found very quickly that most people did not understand what the, pub, what the word public is. To them, public is second rate, not worth worrying about. And what people have forgotten is that during this privatisation um, you know, massacre, and that's what it is, we've seen public assets which provided 
public services for people been given away to the private sector and now we are reaping the benefits. Look at the aged care sector and the privatisation of the aged care sector. Look at the privatisation of early childhood development. Look at the privatisation of essential services like gas and electricity. Look at the privatisation of the public service, of many aspects of uh, public hospitals. If you think public hospitals are totally owned by the state, they're not. They have contracts with private corporations to provide medical services. It's the same in the education sector. And the list goes on and on. And we find ourselves in a situation where we think, well, you know, what's going on? What's going on? It's as if the concept, the state, should assist its residents to access the basic necessities of life, no longer is current. And this comes from us accepting the premise that capitalism, private investment for private profit, is the only way, the only cultural, the only culture, the only economic system, the only uh, type of management that actually can actually provide for human needs. Well, it can't. So if you're swimming against the tide, keep swimming against the tide. Some of us will be swept away, some of us will drown, but some of us will succeed and we will be able to change things. That new world in your heart will not come about through social media and it won't come about by continuing to be a member of the somebody should do something about that tribe or, you know, the Gunner tribe. Human history shows us that it's feet on the ground that ultimately win struggles. And it's important that we continue to push for change. And if we're swimming against the tide, so be it. There's always a cost. There's always the chance of success. You listen to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on freecr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3CR. And just in case you live in uh, Melbourne and you're interested in the public housing struggle, every Thursday from 12 to 1, uh, we meet for a vigil on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House. And that'll mean the 29th. And it goes on and on and on. It's been going on for eight years and it will continue to go go on, irrespective of whether we're swimming against the tide or not, because ultimately we will win this struggle. Because ultimately it's not the private sector that is going to solve the issue of housing, access to housing. It's tried, it's failed, and it will continue to fail. Now, I don't think, I don't know if many people understand the concept of dual power. What gives a sovereign nation state the ability to survive is a monopoly on the use of force. It's very simple a monopoly on the use of force, whether that monopoly 
is through a parliamentary system, a representative democracy as in Australia, whether that monopoly is through a dictatorship like in North Korea, or whether that monopoly is a, you know, a, um, a fusion of an autocratic leader holding so-called democratic elections, as we see in Russia and Turkey, and the list goes on and on. But the dilemma is that a state can only function if, if it enjoys a monopoly on the use of force in the area it controls. That is the definition of a state. It may be there are people of a common language, a common culture, a common history, but ultimately it's that the monopoly on the use of force within that designated geographical region which gives a state its authority. And what we've seen over the last week or two, well, what we see over the last, what we see consistently over time, is dual power situations arriving. Now we're seeing this in Sudan, and we just saw this in Russia. And the, and the f interesting thing is that Sudan and Russia have been following a common pathway, a common pathway. And that common pathway is to allow, the state has allowed, the rise of mercenary groups to actually do the dirty work for it. Create the, create the chaos within that society in order to maintain their power. For example, in Sudan, two years ago, there was half a revolution people of Sudan rose up against an autocratic dictatorship which had ruled the country for over three decades. Now, Sudan did have a parliamentary democracy before it was taken over by Muslim fundamentalists and then just by autocrats. In order for the armed forces to maintain their monopoly on the use of force, they invited the Janjaweed devils on horseback, which was a mercenary force which had been created by the former government to conduct atrocities in, in southern Sudan and the Darfur region of Victoria to join the government. And the head of the Janjawi became, became the president, vice president, and the head of the armed forces became the president. And the movement for democracy was crushed through this coalition. Ten weeks ago, the Janjaweed under Humati launched a full-scale assault on the Sudanese military, thinking they had the power to create, to overthrow the military and become the de facto rulers of the country. And this occurred because the military wanted to absorb this separate mercenary force, the Janjaweed, into its ranks to actually remove the threat that it posed to its control of the country. Let's move across to Russia.
Now, in Russia, we saw after 89, we saw two things happen. One was the privatisation of state assets. But privatisation of state assets, which were worth billions of dollars, which went became the personal property of autocrats from the Russian Communist Party or their supporters. At the same time, we saw the emergence of mercenary groups, not just the Wagner Group, which is one of many in Russia, but we saw the emergence of mercenary groups which were supported, aided and abetted by the increasingly autocratic Russian government in order to maintain its authority. A week ago, the Wagner Group fought. It had enough public support to march on Moscow. And obviously this is a, a direct challenge to the current autocratic ruler of Russia. A direct physical challenge. And once again we've seen Frankenstein and in Sudan it was the Janjaweed, and here it's the Wagner Group in Russia, trying to kill its creators. And that's the situation which we find ourselves in today, in 2023. Now, irrespective of what you think of the Russian oligarchy, and irrespective of what you think of its invasion of the Ukraine, and how the US and NATO has uh, profited and manipulated the situation so it's reached this era. The problem is that this instability, which is created in a dual power situation, is exceptionally dangerous. Because the main casualties in these situations are civilians. In Sudan, in Khartoum, a city of over 7 million people, everything is ground to a halt. People are just surviving. Disease is taking over. The hospitals are closed. The two factions continue to battle it out in the streets of Khartoum and the rest of Sudan. In Russia, this spectre was avoided. But the fact is that when you see nation-states creating groups to, create, uh, to conduct black operations, and the United States does exactly the same, it's the beginning of the end of that sovereign nation-state. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting today's program. The Anarchist World This Week has been broadcast in various forms since 1977 from the studios of Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne. Gross hypocrisy. Great word. Hypocrisy, isn't it? Now, obviously, while there are these uh, situations occurring around the world, we've got the West 
beating itself in the chest saying, look at us, look at us, look at us. Aren't we wonderful? Aren't we wonderful? The dilemma is hypocrisy has become the latest political catch cry. Look at the hypocrisy of the United States of America. Look at its foreign policies over the last century. Look at the atrocities that were committed in South America in the 70s and 80s where people disappeared, were tortured, raped, their children abducted. The list goes on and on. Look at the hypocrisy of the Vietnam War and the Iraq invasion. It's interesting that uh, Mr Simon Crean has died in the last week. And I think Mr Simon Crean's greatest uh, claim to fame isn't the fact that he was the leader of the ACTU, that he served as a minister in four different uh, Labor governments, that he was the leader of the opposition. But the fact, in a period of gross hysteria, that the Labor Party, under his leadership, actually opposed the invasion of the Iraq war. It's interesting to see Mr Albanese try to patch it over by saying, well, he opposed it, but he did go and, you know, farewell the troops when they went to Iraq. The thing is, hypocrisy is the name of the game as far as Western politics is concerned. Look at the allies that we have. Look at the atrocities that occur in the House of Saudi in the Arabian Peninsula and that government which we have supported and kept in power for decades. Look at the atrocities that are committed against the Palestinian people, especially those in the Gaza Strip, the world's biggest prison. Look at the atrocities committed in our own country regarding First Nations people. And the fact is that if they're allies, we are quite happy to ignore any human right concerns. But if they're on on the other side of the ledger, we're quite happy to beat them around the ears with their human rights violations. So the fact is that there are no communist states in the world then what we have is a a world which is dominated by private investment for private profit culture. Whether it's private capitalism or state capitalism, and state capitalism is when the state owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication, or a mixture. The fact is that capitalism, private investment for private profit, is the catch cry around the world. And the fact is that these leaders whether they're self-appointed or elected, whether elected in fair elections or rigged elections, the fact is that the majority of people on this planet are held hostages to their personal ambitions and their ability to concentrate power 
and concentrate wealth in the hands of a shrinking minority. And the history of the 21st century is a history of growing inequality, not just in terms of financial, financially, but growing inequality in terms of being able to determine the type of life we lead. And unfortunately in this country, as you know and I know, we've all become investors. We've all become investors. Well, those of you with superannuation funds all become investors. And mentality has changed. It's not about the public good, the many. The public is just the many. It's about the fact that everybody wants to be a millionaire or a billionaire. We think that somehow, if our financial position improved, that somehow our lives would change dramatically. Well, they may change in terms of not being harassed by people, you know, wanting money. But in terms of creating a more equitable way of living, it hasn't. All we've done by embracing this private investment for private profit investment mantra, all we've done is increased anxiety in the community, increased inequality, increased tension, and destroyed the future for our children and grandchildren. Let's move on. I'm really fascinated by the corporate-owned media and the Government Guild at ABC and, to a lesser degree, Community Radio. And I'm fascinated by censorship and self-censorship and the growth of this scourge. Look, if you live in Australia, I'm going to concentrate on Australia as far as the media is concerned. There are current narratives. And what we see every day is the ignoring facts or twisting facts to suit the current narrative. Whether it's the war in Ukraine, whether it's a, a narrative regarding the, um, you know, the forthcoming the voice referendum, whether it's an economic narrative, whether it's a narrative regarding... Housing. What we see is the domination of the media, both the government guild at ABC and the corporate-owned media, by concepts and ideas which suit and support the current narrative. I'll give you a few examples. And that narrative is based on censorship and, more importantly, self-censorship. And we are seeing this more and more often. Now, you expect this in a privately owned, corporate-owned media, and we see this constantly. Whether it's social issues which suddenly become unacceptable, whether it's economic issues, we see the privately owned media twist the facts, ignore facts in order to 
augment their profits and support the current narrative about regarding private investment for private profit has been the only mechanism by which society can function. We are seeing it regarding social issues, gender issues, housing issues. There only seems to be one narrative, one story, and everything fits that story. And the great tragedy is that the Australian Broadcasting Corporation has now basically become an entertainment vehicle. What we've seen over the last few weeks is just extraordinary. We've seen a change, a radical change, in terms of the ability of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation uh, to create or support alternative narratives. That's been going on for a long time. But what we are seeing now is the removal of positions like the chief political editor in Canberra. Could you imagine that? The Australian Broadcasting Corporation has now removed their chief political editor in Canberra and said we no longer need that position. What's the point of having 20 journalists in Canberra if you don't have a chief political editor? What's the point? And the point is very simple. It's to create an ABC which is no longer critical of government policy. And it's interesting to see that in this period, the main group, which is actually holding the Albanese Labor uh, Liberal government to account, is the Australian Greens. I mean, the Liberal Party has been missing in action. The National Party, well, the National Party is the National Party. And again, when we see reporters in The Guardian, The Unage, so-called, so-called soft left, you know, um, organisations, removing columnists who've been there for over a quarter of a century because they're not happy with criticism or not happy with the way they are handling specific subjects or refusing to publish articles, you begin to understand what's happening. Now, many, many years ago, it must have been at least 30 years ago, I developed a, f a friendship with a, a bloke called Tom Pryor. He was a senior reporter in The Sun. This is before that he became The Herald Sun. And he was basically a crime reporter. And it one stage we had a we had a number of meetings and he did a few articles on the emerging anarchist movement in uh, Melbourne in the 1980s and for the first time in his life he was censored by editorial staff and wasn't able to publish certain articles and he said it was very simple he said well for the first time after you know 30 to 40 years working for this organization i began to understand what censorship is all about. And censorship is about not allowing people to actually debate issues. It's about allowing the book burners to take control. 
It's about only publishing, talking about material that fits the narrative. And the public housing debate is a wonderful example because there is no public housing debate. And the transgender debate is another wonderful example. And the debate around the voice is another wonderful example. The fact is, there are certain narratives, certain stories. That's all a narrative is, is a story, a continuing story. That no longer deemed to be acceptable because the book burners now find themselves in positions of authority in editorial positions. And people who have fought against censorship in its various forms for decades now find themselves paying the price. And whether it's community radio, whether it's the government guild at ABC, whether it's the corporate-owned media, it's become a scourge. Because when that happens, there is no debate. And then when there is no debate, there is increasing disquiet, anxiety in the community. And debate is pushed underground. And that's when we see, as we're beginning to see, the rise of movements and organisations and people that have the most extreme viewpoints regarding personal autonomy, regarding the centralisation of power. And that's what we're seeing created because of the lack of debate in the so-called, you know, in the so-called, you know, uh, media. So think about it. And if you think social media is the answer, I'm afraid all social media does is create isolation, silos, click warriors who achieve nothing except hatred. You listen to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. So, look, the Eureka celebrations will be on this year, as in the last 21 years. Reclaim the radical spirit of the Eureka Rebellion celebrations to mark the 169th anniversary of the Eureka Rebellion. And one of the most disturbing aspects of this celebration has been the disdain. That's right, total and utter disdain shown by the Ballarat City Council over the last 169 years regarding Eureka and the importance of Eureka in the history, not just of that city in the history of this country. And although it pays lip service by having a Eureka Centre, and it pays lip service by using the symbols of Eureka to promote itself, the fact is the Ballarat City Council has minimal interest in Eureka. And historically it's been ashamed of a rebellion which occurred in that fair city. 
and nothing highlights this more than the fact the Ballarat City Council has never flown the Eureka flag on the main flagpole over Ballarat City Hall in Ballarat on Eureka Day on the 3rd of December. Could you imagine the hue and cry if we didn't celebrate or observe Anzac Day? Could you imagine the hue and cry from the government gelded ABC, the corporate-owned media, community radio or community, you know, uh, media, social media, the list goes on and on. Could you imagine the hue and cry? But one day a year, one day a year, you would expect the Ballarat City Council to honour the men and women who died on that day. And they died for ideas which are incorporated in the Eureka Oath. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. Internationalism, direct action, direct democracy, mutual aid. That's what Eureka was about. Now, wonder the Ballarat City Council is hesitant about flying the Eureka flag on the main flagpole on City Hall. Extraordinary. So this year, I'm just alerting you to the celebration so you can make arrangements. It's on a Sunday, not a work day on a Sunday, 3rd of December. Have a dawn ceremony at 4am at Eureka Park. That's followed by a communal breakfast at, at 10 o'clock. We meet at Bakery Hill. Site where on the 29th of November the Eureka Oath was taken to give out six Eureka Australia Day medals to activists who you won't find in the King's Birthdays on a list or the Invasion Day on a list. And where nominations are now open, we are looking for activists who may not be a household name who've worked for decades to promote struggle across this country, to promote egalitarian struggle, who have been ignored, ostracised, marginalised. We wish to celebrate them. You know who they are. You know the people around you. You can do it in two ways. You can... Uh, Leave a message on 0439 395 489. 0439 395 489. Or you can send an email to info at anarchistage at yahoo.com or info at pibci.net. Or you can write to us at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Nominations close on the 10th of November. So. We are looking for nominations. We received a few. We're looking for more, but we're looking for those. doesn't matter where you live in Australia. It's an Australian-wide award uh, to those activists who should be celebrated, who should be honoured for what they've done with the Eureka Medal. The other thing we're interested in reinstituting is the uh, Eureka Dinner, as we had before COVID-19. 
and we usually have entertainment. Now, I'd like to take bookings from now because once we know how many people are interested, when then we can sort out the venue. So if you want to make a booking for the Eureka dinner, give us a ring on 0439 395 489. 0439 395 489. There's no cost involved except you pay for what you eat and drink. So we need to know numbers before we can try to uh, find a suitable venue. So you're listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. You see, everything is interwoven in life, and I'd just like to read out a letter which I've written. Yes, I don't usually read out stuff, but... Uh... Now, in the public housing struggle, the Margaret Kelly struggle, we uh, discovered that the uh, Ministry of Housing lives at uh, 50 Lonsdale Street in Melbourne, floor 22. And we discovered that uh, ISPT, which is a conglomeration of 25 uh, superannuation companies, it's an investment vehicle for over a trillion dollars, and sup uh, which has the superannuation contributions of over 5 million Australians, actually owns that building. And we discovered, with your help, that um, they've got a um, human rights section a policy. So the thing is, when you're involved in a struggle, you've got to look at all aspects of that struggle. You know, you may have a protest, you may have a vigil, you may turn up in court, but you've got to look at all aspects. But another thing is we need to follow the money trail. It says, Dear Chair ISPT, I'm writing to you as convener of public housing everybody's business and Miss Margaret Kelly, a 68-year-old pensioner who has lived in the Barrack Beacon Estate in Port Melbourne for over a quarter of a century. Ms Kelly will be forcefully evicted from her home in the next few weeks as a result of the actions of one of the co-tenants on Level 22 of the building ISPT owns at 50 Lonsdale Street, Melbourne. It's, an, it's ironic, an organisation which incorporates over 25 superannuation company who manages over a trillion dollars of around 5 million Australian workers' hard-earned superannuation contributions is happy to provide shelter to an organisation, the Victorian Department of Families, Fairness and Housing, DFFH, which is hell-bent on forcefully relocating thousands of Victorian public housing tenants in an orgy of privatisation of public housing stocks in Victoria. Instead of embarking on a retain, repair, reinvent policy as far as public housing as far as public sec, public housing sector in Victoria is concerned, successive Victorian state governments have abrogated their responsibility to some of the most vulnerable members of the Victorian community by outsourcing their responsibility to the private sector. Community, social, affordable, inclusive housing is privately owned and privately managed. Public housing is publicly owned and publicly managed. Public housing tenants are now paying the price for these policies. Considering the tragic state of housing affordability in this country, the Victorian State Government's current housing policies do little, if anything, to address the problem. An expanding public housing sector introduces competition in a marketplace that is dominated by the private sector. 
Growth in the public housing sector puts downward pressure on rents and decreases price at the lower end of the residential marketplace. Increasing public housing stocks provide security for tenants and their children. This increases social cohesion and decreases crime in the community. Public housing goes a long way to addressing the problems created by the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation and corporatisation mania that has dramatically increased inequality in Australia. I realise ISPT and the board works within a legislative framework that makes it difficult for you to address the issues I've raised, but you do have the ability, as ISPT owns 50 Lonsdale Street, Melbourne, to decide through your management partners who is a suitable tenant. Considering ISPT adopted a human rights policy in, in, 90, in 2022, you have the ability to decide who is a suitable tenant Interestingly, ISPT states in the policy, the policy applies to all directors, employees and independent contractors of ISPT and activities of the ISP troop, including ISPT Operations Proprietary Limited. We also expect our business partners, including our property management companies and suppliers and joint venture partners to comply with this policy. We are committed to working across our value chain, including our tenants to promote continuous improvement in this regard, both in relation to their own operations and business relationship, such as suppliers. I believe your human rights policy gives you the legal right to discuss the Victorian government's housing policies with the Honourable Colin Brooks MP, Minister for Housing and Multicultural Affairs. Hopefully, your intervention plus the intervention of other organisations in Victoria will see the Barrack Beacon Estate in Port Melbourne retained, repaired and expanded as public housing. You and the board realise most workers will never have enough money in their superannuation fund to see them through retirement. Unfortunately, superannuation does not address the most important component of retirement, housing security. Whether this occurs as a result of having enough disposable income to buy a home during a worker's lifetime or by having the ability to access secure public housing where you only need to pay 25% of your income to secure a roof over your head. I am sorry for taking up your valuable time. Attempting to secure millions of workers' retirement futures in a marketplace dominated by an increasing profits irrespective of the human, social, environmental cost mantra where ethical and moral concerns are secondary must be difficult. I wish you and the ISPT board all the best for the future and hope you can assist the Margaret Kellys of the world who, through no fault of their own, find themselves ostracised and marginalised in a world bereft of ethical and moral standards. Yours sincerely. Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else Anarchist World this week Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse 10am every Wednesday Listen to the Anarchist World this week For an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events Poisoning their brainwashed minds Oh, larger!
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.